Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I was in the company of Eric Cantona, and I became a total juvenile, blubbering, incoherent uh, mess. That's nice. Where I literally had no idea what to say to the man. I think I asked him, like, so are you, you staying in... He was at a meet and greet thing in Dublin, and he had won the following night in Belfast. And I was like, are you staying in Dublin tonight? Are you going to Belfast? And he was like, no, no, I stay. And I went, cool. Have a good night, Mr. Cantona. <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Great Did You What's Just so Jump funny? There? <laughs> I jumped out of my skin. I'm sorry because you were so my eager hello. No, I'm just I'm just not used to the headphone situation. I know it's a lot. It's a lot. We're still we're still here in uh, the other studio this week. Um, the TV show is not on air again this week. Um, but I am news correspondent Zara King, joined by my jumpy fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Uh, hey, I'm just getting back into back into it here now. <laughs> I'm calming myself down. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello. You haven't changed your surname yet. You're you're still Zara King. You're not Zara Kingmaker. Oh, now that you've officially done so. So we need to. How am I the Kingmaker though? Uh, well, in that last week we discussed the prospect of Holly Cairns potentially becoming the Social Democrat leader, partly <laughs> off the back of the meteoric media cycle prompted by the group chat, of course. Uh, and now it has come to pass that as we record this, uh, Holly Cairns is now the Shock leader horror. of the Social Democrats. I can't believe that like within the seven days of us having that conversation it went from Holly Cairns hotly tipped to be the leader to Holly Cairns became leader to making first speech in the Dáil. I just think it's quick turnaround. Like normally in there's fairness, leadership yeah. contests. Even but like there was never going to be a, a real contest with it but like it is fairly quick quick order in fairness to get it really done. I think it's really quick. Yeah. Has, it, has there ever been a quicker succession like that? Um, The second Tory leadership uh, succession oh, yeah. of, of last year. <laughs> Not the first one. Well, the few though, maybe yeah. the second one. Yeah, yeah fair. Okay, they've, yeah, fair. They've, they've gotten good with practice. They yeah, have. That's what it is. So, uh, sorry, just the off topic, but I mean, how do you think uh, she's doing so far on day one, Gav, your political assessment of that? <laughs> here's, here's the unprompted, unprompted tangent already. Yeah. Uh, so on the day that we're recording this, she has already done her first slot in leaders questions, that she was in the job 11 minutes and it was her turn to speak in the door to challenge Leo Varadkar and stuff. And I thought that it was very telling that the first thing she chose to raise was, I, a 33-year-old woman from Cork, I'm of the generation where basically loads of my counterparts are never going to own a home that we're the first generation that's ever going to be poorer than our parents mm. that there's a housing disaster and it's all happened on Fine Gael's watch and I think when you're setting out your stall with a blank canvas I think it's a really interesting and probably very fertile ground to start start out on for that to be your your kind of calling card going listen I am of the same generation as the three of us in this room she's mm. been she's had to emigrate because of an economic downturn she represents an age cohort of people who are going to struggle to ever be able to own their own bricks and mortar I think it was a really really interesting and very fertile place to start out from mm. to end the I mean obviously there's been a lot of coverage of Holly Kearns in the last week um, naturally enough but she is still on a party which is most often lumped in with others when you see opinion polls because it doesn't register mm. with people maybe she'll make a difference to that I think she has a lot of problems on her plate with the Social Democrats, which, you know, 
it might feel like it's also a good story with a with a young party and a young party leader. There's a bit of energy about it. They're not going anywhere yet. Mm. They're not going anywhere yet. There's questions about whether or not they should merge in with Labour to become, you know, you're sticking two absolutely irrelevant parties together in the hope of making a slightly more relevant party. Uh, maybe that'll work. Mm. Um, there's internal questions about, you know, some some issues within the party which need to be uh, addressed in terms of organisation and stuff like that. And mm. if there doesn't seem to be a quick change in terms of the party's prospects, well, then you'd be questioning in a while and you'd be like, well, what was the point of all that? Yeah, there is one takeaway point um, to close all of this, which is that a lot of new startup parties don't survive their second leader. That they often oh. they often survive with the first one and then the first one will leave because they either move on or they just want to stand down and let the next generation come or whatever. But then the second generation of people are often the ones who are not able to carry the torch forward. So... No pressure. Do you know what I kind of thought, actually, just when we talk about the quick turnaround, and like I know you were saying there really wasn't much contest there for the leadership, but they would have probably gotten more of a run of like media appearances and a bit more media attention had they ran some sort of a... Maybe. A but debate they, or a back the, and forth. Yeah, well, it may have done, but like, like it's also... They missed a little bit. They missed out on a bit of coverage, probably. But it's a relatively small party. Uh, and And you could question whether it would have been worth having six TDs and 20 councillors um, publicly mm. split over that's not even a classroom's right, okay, worth okay. and like I mean in fairness they did get a lot of coverage over the weekend there's a lot of profile pieces about Holly Kearns who has of course an interesting background an interesting mm. story which isn't like most other politicians in the doll. so she could, they couldn't have bought the level of coverage that they actually got in terms of the bang for the buck in terms of the size of the party for the mm. level of coverage that they've gotten true. And that's been something which is actually probably is true I would say generally of the social democrats um, over the last number of years is that they do get a lot of coverage they do get whether it's because of Captain Murphy and Roisin Shortall they do get themselves in front of the microphones a lot in comparison to parties of similar size and yeah. some even bigger Well we'll see how it plays out mm. it'll be an interesting yeah. couple of weeks and we'll definitely look back in it again so uh, starting off today I suppose look um well, technically the anniversary of COVID actually doesn't have a date because it was the 29th of February was mm. the first confirmed case in Ireland um, today is the 1st of March so I guess it sort of straddles sort between yesterday yeah. and today um, but in the last couple of days uh, one of the former NEFIT members Professor Martin Cormican has uh, been out speaking a little bit about the measures that were put in place and he talks about the fact that he felt that some of the COVID-19 measures uh, depended too much on fear and that some of them were excessive in terms of limiting people's basic freedoms. Now, this is not the first time that Professor Cormican has spoken like this and we can take a listen to this quick clip. Key members of the HSE's management team talk with sincere regrets about the things that have been missed during the pandemic. Professor Martin Cormican, the HSE's national lead on infection control, is pensive as he looks back on the first 18 months of the pandemic in Ireland. The one thing that stands out in my mind is the harm we've done to people that we didn't mean to do, he says. I don't mean any one person now, but I think that some people with good intentions probably took infection prevention and control in a way that I would have never thought about it. Meaning well did great and unnecessary harm by taking things too far. I ask if this is a reference to end-of-life visits, to partners who have been locked out of crucial appointments with their loved one and child in maternity hospitals. A number of things, he says, a number of things. You know more than I that things were brought to our attention where we said, we never said that. We never wanted our guidance to be interpreted in that way. That's not what we meant. He is commiserative about this. He makes sure that I do not interpret his words to mean that anyone was doing it out of malice. The people who have made these mistakes, it's not that they were bad people. They were frightened. They were often trying to do the right thing. But you know, I think that we, as a society and as a healthcare system both, I think we could have been kinder. 
So you might recognise yeah. that voice. Yeah. <laughs> that is the voice, of course, of our fellow podcaster, Richard Chambers. And that is an extract from A State of Emergency, Richard's a book uh, documenting the COVID-19 pandemic in Ireland, which was released in late 2021. So a long time ago, you had that conversation with Martin Cormican mm-hmm. and he's uh, echoing those sentiments again now. Yeah, and he has said them again since. I mean, this is it was a very high profile paper that he wrote where these, um, which has started this sort of focus on what he has said and what his views on things were. It's important to remember a couple of things about Martin Cormack and who is a fascinating guy mm. uh, really committed um, specialist in terms of what he does in terms of infection prevention and control um, he was not on Neffet at the start of Neffet which mm. is probably something which is worth noting because a lot of the decisions were taken early on in terms of things like closing schools um, in terms of access to you know people going into the workplace and stuff like that when he was not there Mm. And there was an element of people believing that he was not let on Neffet in the first place because he would not have gone along with this. That there was a political element to things in a way. And this is something which is charged to Tony Houlihan a, a lot is that he was quite political in terms of his selection and how he worked the room. Some people have described him, I've obviously reported this before, as being quite dictatorial in how he run, ran Neffet at the time. So Martin Cormican was never really seen in that. Despite the fact that he was the head of infection control, uh, and prevention, sorry, for for the HSE, which seems like something you'd obviously want. Kind of yeah. a glaring omission yeah. from Neffet at the time, yeah. Big gap there. So what he has said here and what he said um, in other things as well, including um, Pandemonium, the book by uh, Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell, mm-hmm. is that he doesn't believe that schools should have closed for the duration that they were closed for, n- amongst a number of other things which were done in the name of trying to stem the flow of the pandemic. That has obviously caused a lot of a stir because people are now seeing this as well. This is an admission of it that there was a grave mistake there. But I think if you talked to other people on Neffet as well, they'd probably even say, maybe we didn't go far enough with things. Well, this is the important point, I think, isn't it? Because part of why this has now garnered so much attention is that those who always thought the state was overreaching with the limits that it put on people's lives and the closures that it enforced um, now kind of consider this to be aha well proof like the, the lead infection control guy for the HSE says that none of this was warranted and if he's talking about an over-reliance on fear then doesn't that prove the point that the whole thing was a paragraph but in truth it is one opinion and it's a very qualified opinion and ought to be paid attention to but that it doesn't necessarily mean that Neffet was for want of a better way of putting it it doesn't mean Neffet was wrong it just means that Neffet maybe could have had better advice. But it, again, nor it doesn't mean no, anyone in, in Neffet bleh, acted uh, with malice or inappropriately. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he is right. It's just another opinion to throw into the mix, mm. right? Yeah, I think as well, you know, it, as you say, Richard, like in terms of the makeup of Neffet at the time, like I think it was very clear that like, as you know, a lot of the members of Neffet were people that Tony Houlihan really trusted and worked with over the years. Like these were people that he really... Um, sort of rallied around in that time and they were yep. people who he uh, had a very close relationship with um, and that was really a very dominant um, you know, factor in, in people's position on Neffet at the time particularly in the early days. It sure was and I mean Neffet just grew over time and it's actually been so like long since college friends, as, you know, Some of the members of Neffet were college yeah, friends. Yeah, people who he started his career with mm. and all that sort of stuff and I can't believe we've mentioned the word Neffet so many times after almost going a long, long time yeah. without saying it at all. We nearly Neffet. made a point of going the first year of the podcast without ever discussing this topic again. I feel like it's our life is flashing before our eyes again. Mm. Um, but yeah, and I actually, I took another um, bit because I was having a look back on my notes from the book as well, that there, it, it's worth saying that Martin Cormican wasn't, isn't, isn't alone, I should say, in his view that he thinks things went too far in terms of preventing the spread of the virus. This is another senior member of NEFET, another senior member of the HSE saying that um, effectively 
that the pursuit of preventing the spread of COVID-19 became a white whale, the Moby Dick, that effectively in pursuit of trying to shut down every avenue in which the virus could transmit, that they lost sight of secondary harm. And the quote, quote, quote this person, uh, the captain of the ship lost sight. All he saw was the whale. There was enormous secondary harm. Ultimately, the cause was the virus, but there was secondary harm that will be with us for years to come. And he says he blames himself too for all of this, but this is something which is going to be looked at, whether that's in terms of you know, missed cancer diagnoses. Mm. I remember speaking, I'm sure you did as well, mm. speaking to GPs even locally about stuff like, you know, young girls and stuff like that who hadn't been in school, missing diagnoses of stuff which would have been picked up otherwise. Yeah. Like mm. even things like eating disorders and, and, mm. and you know, uh, more psychological things. Those sort of things were missed. And I think that is probably going to be something which is going to be focused on in this COVID inquiry whenever that formally gets up. Is mm. basically what was missed. Why were the decisions taken that were taken was there enough oversight was there enough questioning of the direction that things were taken Mm. I think there's you'll hear a lot of people push back on the idea of this particularly people who were involved at the time who were like well I don't want to go around and see who blame of that I don't think the politicians are going to look for a blame game no, and I think even in the clip we're playing, we play there, Martin Cormican, like he's actually very clear in saying the decisions were made well in t- good intentions. Mm. And I think that that's probably at the at the crux of this. I mean, as you say, whether or not there was enough oversight and governance on the decisions will remain the outcome of that, that review will, will reveal that. But certainly uh, as journalists covering it and kind of witnessing it at the time, uh, it was definitely, you know, certainly appeared that the decisions were made in good faith and that there was good intentions but I think that that argument about there being the whale that white whale and that one thing I think that's probably a fair comment at the time it, you it, know. it probably is there's of course the, the secondary thing about the, the inadvertent harm that's caused A it's impossible on the day to quantify what that's going to look like but B you could also still argue that notwithstanding whatever inadvertent harm was caused missed cancer diagnoses or any other illnesses that weren't picked up you will never really know unless you could live in a parallel universe where you saw things go differently as to whether that is still the lesser situation. Like, what, what would have happened if, hypothetically, if some restrictions weren't put in place for a week after they were and the virus was allowed to seed more in the community? Mm. The, the damage that that may have caused and the deaths that may have followed may have arguably, if it's possible to, met, to, to put metrics on these things, could have outweighed any secondary harm. The, the cancers that you may have picked up by keeping that operational for a week the lives you may have saved there could potentially have been dramatically outweighed by the number of lives you could lose by allowing the virus to run. Yeah, I think I think it's a hard one to actually to, to, to come to this realisation, but I think it's probably fair to say that there is no real one right answer for anything which mm-hmm. has taken the decisions yeah. that are made. Every single country did something slightly different from every other country. Uh, every health system, every company did things slightly differently to every other company or health system. Like... There was no one-size-fits-all approach that worked anywhere. Like, you've even seen in sort of the, the, the in the aftermath of things, the fact that we're even talking about still about, you know, COVID-19 situation in terms of China and how things are being spread there because of the zero policy there. Mm. There's been long-standing impacts in other parts of the world as well. It, it's worth saying that the whole point of why we were meant to be doing a COVID inquiry was meant to be to pre- prepare for the next the one. The next pandemic, mm. yeah. Um, I think that there is an element of where we you do you do need to look back over what happened and whether or not you know there was enough care taken in decisions made. That's absolutely for 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 everyone, particularly people who lost loved ones in nursing homes. I'm thinking of in that in that in that example, they will want to see that things were done with proper care and the proper pro- procedures were followed. But the main 
thing, the main outcome which we're meant to be taking from any inquiry is to get ourselves ready for the next pandemic because there's probably likely to be another Mm -hmm. pandemic within Mm -hmm. our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. That is often lost sight of in these things. And I suppose the the fear among some people is, well, if you go around and you're looking for, well, X person did this and Y person did that Mm -hmm. and these are civil servants, well, yeah. why would anybody ever stand well, up to these positions? In I was the just going to say, there's an element of it being kind of thankless, isn't there? You know what I mean? And you think of like some of the lesser known members in effort that we would have spoken to and dealt with over the pandemic that maybe weren't necessarily the ones you saw on TV all the time. There were people who showed up to the meetings and, you know, came and, and you know, threw themselves into it with a heart and a half and probably did come with good intentions. And if they're the kind of people who are going to find themselves with the finger being pointed at them, those people may not step up again in the future and that's a bit of a concern as well. It has to be very policy driven and for better or worse a lot of how we ended up covering it for the two years that we were really in the thick of it ended up being very personality driven. Partly I think because of the the circumstances about how COVID took root in the first place and it was in in that fallow period between Mm. a general election and a government being formed so the outgoing government didn't really have the authority to do a huge amount unless unless Tony Hulham was front and centre endorsing I was gonna say, and people were stuck at home you have to remember and like really worried about this so like things like Tony Hulham's evening press conference became yeah. like mm. the thing that everyone was watching but, you know became but, the number one yeah. most uh, watched thing on TV at that time and, and that uh, that I think is, is the concern that we have to make sure that whenever there is any investigation and Leo Varadkar only today the day that we're recording this has committed to there being some sort of in his words public inquiry uh, at some point in this year in 2023 but it really does have to focus and find fault maybe with the policies Mm. but if it gets into a finger pointing thing where you're talking about the individual people and you say Tony did wrong or or Philip Nolan did wrong or Ronan Glynn did wrong or Stephen Donnelly did wrong that's where you're going to get into all sorts of trouble because you're not going to actually learn the lessons that you're supposed to learn for next time It is going to be interesting to see how this does pan out I think one thing which as an observer and somebody like the rest of us who was focusing in on you know how government reacted with Mm. you know how the public health officials reacted and how that whole thing intersected I wonder how well the inquiry will work it it depends on how it's actually run there's a question about whether or not things will be done in public as opposed Mm. to in private I think and like the term of reference and everything yeah yeah. I think things should be done probably in public because this is a thing which was you know governed absolutely everyone's lives for the best part of two to three years like in a similar style to like an Oireachtas committee or something yeah and I don't don't, this is the problem this is the the point Mm. I was getting to is like given how I know you know and Gav knows about how politicians acted about any of this sort of stuff Mm. can you imagine an Oireachtas committee doing this and I don't mean this in any disrespect to people on Oireachtas committees but there's an awful lot of grandstanding and there's an awful Mm. lot of I don't actually want to get answers from this I want Mm. to get my clip on the news I'm sorry that's how things are run it is is. Um, so I don't I I wonder about that as to whether or not that is the best way we find fact or we find out how we take this forward so we don't make mistakes which were Mm. made in the past and that's something as well a lot of mistakes were absolutely made I think that's something which we all have to acknowledge as parts of this but it's going to be interesting to see what the actual makeup and how exactly you go about trying to account for what happened in the past and look forward to how you prepare for the future. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Windsor framework, formerly known as the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, Gav, what exactly is it? We're trying to think of a good example of a rebranding that actually kind of worked. <laughs> New Coke. <laughs> New Coke, Marathon Becoming Snickers. Uh, is it still the same thing? Um, what do you make of the name, by the way? Uh, very pointedly unionist. Yeah. Uh, could, like, you basically couldn't make the thing any more loyally British unless you had it wearing a Union Jack waistcoat and with a little bulldog sort of vibes going on. Like, it's the most like ostentatiously British title you could give to it. Um so the Windsor framework let's maybe rewind a bit um, because to understand the Windsor framework or why it is important or why it may finally bring an end to this whole saga maybe we have to go a little bit back and sort of point out the problems with what it's replacing and that's the famous Northern Ireland Protocol Mm. so long story short the Northern Ireland Protocol was a set of rules that were uh, introduced when Britain actually left the EU uh, as part of Brexit such that Northern Ireland would remain part of the European single market, uh, which was necessary to avoid there being any kind of a hard border on the island. But that in turn meant that uh, a lot of British policy couldn't directly apply to Northern Ireland for fear of it um, creating the need for border checks. And it would mean that Northern Ireland was still under some supervision of European courts. And Unionists in Northern Ireland naturally had some concern about this because they're like, well, if the UK is leaving, how come we're being sort of left behind in this halfway house? The halfway house was attempted to be sold as a virtue that you had the best of both worlds, but Unionists thought that actually they had possibly the lesser of both worlds. And that's their worldview and, and fair enough. So uh, Britain and the EU have spent the last 18 months or more trying to figure out some way that you can refine or ultimately replace this. And what they've come down on is effectively a replacement for the whole thing, which does still allow for uh, Northern Ireland to remain part of the European single market. So anyone exporting from the north has access to the Republic and the rest of Europe. Um, But when it comes to stuff that's coming from Britain into Northern Ireland, no longer will there be the need for any kind of checks to make sure that customs into the Republic are being dealt with. Um, There are now two different lanes. There's a green lane where if it's stuff that's going to the north and staying there, there isn't any kind of supervision at all and a red lane which will involve electronic declarations but very little actual paperwork. So the intention is still to give them the best of both worlds and the ultimate reason why we're talking about all of this is because they're hoping that the DUP will be so happy that's the lead Unionist Party in the North will find all of this acceptable and will agree to go back into power sharing because they have pulled out of running a government in Northern Ireland for the last 18 months Mm. as a result of all of this. And that's the interesting point about this because this was the Northern Ireland Protocol which was originally signed by Boris Johnson which many people forget not least of all himself um, it did cause problems and it did create an identity crisis for unionists in the north because it effectively did create mm. a border between Northern Ireland and Britain effectively there was a sea border there um, and it had an impact a lot of businesses even including Marks and Spencers in particular would be talking about sausages sausage wars was a, a phrase which mm-hmm. has been used mm-hmm. regularly as much as actually, and I think it's something that sh- which we have a natural inclination here to sort of poke fun and sort of almost downplay, I suppose, the concerns of unionists and, you know, the British side of things in, when it comes to Brexit. That we've seen, to, there's almost a natural thing. It's like, well, these they signed up to it. The, everything is tickety-boo. Everything's working well. For the most part, the protocol did work well. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah. for not everything. 
and there has no. been high profile things which went wrong but there was more about the identity thing the green lanes and the red lanes thing is the way to fix it but the DUP aren't on side yet no which I think is actually and I just want to say because I listened to Sammy Wilson uh, at, at lunchtime uh, oh, today uh, it was actually this morning I heard him on I think yeah. he, was, he did an interview with the Telegraph in the UK and he um, because this was all the, the pageantry around this is actually one to, is, is something worth, which is worth thinking about whereas previously British Prime Ministers and we've seen too many of them over recent years uh, were almost seen as buffoonish mm. and everything was carried off with a bluster mm. and everything was like well was I'm going to show I'm going to show yeah. Europe what to do and all, all that sort of stuff this was all very well done right down to the fact that King Charles met with mm. Ursula von der Leyen for tea at Windsor um, Windsor Palace mm. soft diplomacy Windsor Castle isn't it Windsor Castle isn't yes. it sorry yeah. Castle, yeah. for von der Leyen's tea if you want to put it that way um, Sammy Wilson annoyed Effectively, th- effectively threatened King it's Charles. A great line. Uh, a great line. That, he, that he's jeopardising the monarchy by getting involved in politics. That the king is insufficiently British, basically, <sighs> uh, which is quite the take. insufficiently British. That's basically said. what he's getting at. That he's, he's not loyal enough to to the UK and to its loyalists. That like, what's he doing? But here's the thing. What's he right? doing? Getting all pally with Europe? He's one of us. But here's the thing about like, I mean. You can definitely see some DUP voters getting really sick of this, though, and like they just really want their lives to go back to some level of normality. Like, I mean, when it comes to like people's real priorities in Northern Ireland, I mean, it comes down to exactly the same as it is here: cost of living and just, you know, basically getting someone back up and running. Like, they don't really, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who are getting quite fed up of yeah. all of this. Oh my god! So, so at, no, at, no, no. So at the time of recording, we don't know whether the DUP will accept all of this as grounds to get back into power sharing in Northern Ireland, and that in itself is it has a certain level of symbolism because we're obviously coming up to the 25th anniversary of Good Friday we'd quite like uh, the institutions created by Good Friday to actually be working at that point there's also a good chance of Joe Biden coming over for a nice little shindig and a load of handshakes uh, around Easter time um, if he reckons that there is something to go to but he's not going to come if, if Stormont is in shutdown um, but there's also probably a bigger question and maybe this is a talk for another time because it could get so existential but if the DUP won't go back in now they're not going to stop Britain from doing this deal because yeah, Rishi, Rishi, behind Rishi Sunak is, is going to mm-hmm. endorse this deal no matter what. It's going to get voted through in the House of Commons no matter what. It's going to become part of the new arrangements between the EU and the UK. And the EU has other stuff on its plate beyond just the affairs of Stormont. They want science funding and defence cooperation and security cooperation and educational collaborations. They want all of that taken care of as well, which this will help them do. But what happens if this deal is implemented and the DUP are still not happy to go back and share power with Sinn Féin and Stormont? Because then there's a big question really as to whether power sharing in the North but is ever going to work. I was going to say, is, it, is the DUP's issue more around the fact that Michelle O'Neill is First Minister? Like, is that the real... Is it more to do with that, do you think, than... Perspectively. Yeah. They, they've never like, been... Is t- it more of a is, that a... is that really at the yeah. crux of what's going on? They've here? never been totally unequivocal uh, about saying that they're totally happy to go in and serve uh, alongside Michelle O'Neill, even though it's worth bearing in mind that the roles of First Minister and Deputy First Minister, although it's, there's a perceived hierarchy they're more or less they're the same role you are yeah. you are co-first minister in fact Sinn Féin when Michelle O'Neill was deputy they used to call her joint first minister because that's effectively what you are so it's it's really only symbolism that you would be first and deputy first um, but yeah if they don't go back in you'd really question whether there's going to be any future and whether you have to go back to the drawing board and rethink how Northern Ireland is going to be run long term because it's not going to work mm. the, the word is that they probably will go in that they're going to take a couple of weeks, perhaps even a month, or if not longer, to have a think about all this. But they're going to have to quietly go along with this because they're not going to change it. No, and I think it's the best available deal. The rub of this for people is that there is a problem. There's a very strong chance, 
and I think this is probably the most important thing out of all this is that we might not ever have to talk about Brexit to a huge degree ever again Fingers after crossed. this yeah. which is honestly if, so if, the, if the word Brexit makes you ill uh, and makes your skin crawl well thank your lucky stars for this uh, <laughs> Windsor framework between the EU uh, and Rishi Sunak's government because it might well put an end to all of this conversation all the consternation too around it um, it could well all be over because of this and as you were saying Gav they probably don't need the DUP to do this the DUP from what we understand might you know they're saving face by effectively saying well we're not 100% sure about all this yeah. we have those wasn't it seven tests they came up with the yeah. seven tests of the DUP so when they, pulled out, like they, they set down seven tests which was that the, there would be no trading frontiers at all between the North and Britain and that there would all these be political tests and the, the stormant break as it's called which will now allow MLAs the prospect of stopping European law from taking automatic effect in the North like it, they're all things that work but yeah like there's the seven tests if the DUP says they're met, great, happy days. It doesn't matter. Brexit's then legitimately in the rearview mirror. Like you can, we can stop thinking about it. Mm. Um, but will the DUP take it? I, I suspect they probably will have to because they're not going to get anyone else to go back to the table and, and revise all of this again. So there may be some role for the European Court of Justice to oversee what happens inside the six counties, but they're going to have to swallow it basically because it's the best deal they're ever going to get and they need this to be behind them somewhere or another. I Yeah. It says a lot, doesn't it, about Rishi Sunak and even him as a personality, I would say, doesn't it, in terms of the relationship that he seems to have formed with Ursula von der Leyen. Y- yeah. There's a genuine kind of um, warmth between the two of those. And, like, you haven't seen that warmth between Britain and Europe for, no. like, a really long time. I think there's no dear boys coming out of Ursula, where it's all yeah. dear Rishi. Yeah, yeah, I have to say. I would say that's probably one of the most interesting things that's happened here, is that there was definitely a marked change of approach. If you went back even the last three prime ministers to UN Trust, you went Theresa May and you went Boris Johnson. That there was always this air of conflict about it. And I think that the biggest read that this is actually going to get the okay and this is going to be mm-hmm. fine is that even the most ardent, the most stridently Brexity, gammony press <laughs> in the United Kingdom has said, like, I know, gammony. I think it was the, the male, the male said, um, has Rishi done the impossible? Rishi Sunak also has had a miserable start to his life as Prime Minister. This could be the turning point for all of that mm-hmm. in terms of the relationship between Ireland, Britain, and yeah. the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, like at least when Liz Truss was Prime Minister you could get vegetables so you could measure whether people were still staying in office or not like under Rishi Sunak you can't even get a lettuce in the supermarket to try and figure out whether you can outlast it or not <laughs> but the most entertaining point of all of this was when Rishi Sunak the other day was in Antrim uh, to sell this deal to unionists uh, at a Coca-Cola factory in Antrim he's a uh, coke addict is he or like a self-described Coca-Cola he is. addict yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I think we might need to catch that on the edit uh, <laughs> Um, you know what I mean it's yeah, brand new yeah. yeah but he's, he's a soda fan if you want to put it that way but um, <laughs> he, I don't even think he drinks or smokes soda is his is his kind of liquor of choice isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but he was there and he was trying to sell this to unionists and he was sort of saying he's like guys you have the best thing possible you have access to the UK market and the EU single market this is the most incredible thing this is now the most exciting economic zone in the, in the world. world which is an incredible descriptor I don't know if you know any other economic zones which are terribly <laughs> exciting uh, but that is it now um, Northern Ireland is, is now set to become the most economic exciting mm. zone in the world but like I mean because what he still, was describing it still has what everyone else voted away yeah yeah pretty yeah. much like the thing about it as well just going back to the Rishi Sunak point like is that it's given him a kind of a, a real statesman sort of vibe in fairness and it's also 
as you say, it's kind of it's the first time that Britain hasn't come across as being kind of you know argumentative, confrontational, mm. and aggressive. It seems like it's it's the friendliest Britain has appeared on the but, international stage in a long time. But there's one material change that they've done, which has allowed this deal to actually happen in ways mm. that it didn't previously. Because people who have been following this at certain arm's length will, will know over the last three or four years that unionists and Brexiteers have constantly talked about why can't we have green lanes and red lines, and why can't we just operate in good faith, and why do we need to check all this stuff coming into the north, and surely there's technological solutions we can deploy and usually they got sort of fobbed away or laughed out of the room as being pie in the sky stuff but now that's what's happening the reason why it's happening is because previously British government said well the EU wants to know what's going between Britain and Northern Ireland so as to safeguard their own market but just none of their business that's going from the UK to the UK so what do they need to know it's nothing to do with them and Rishi Sunak says well no if in good faith you need to make sure that there isn't stuff coming across the border from the north into the Republic we're going to share the paperwork filings with you so if somebody says here's what's going from Britain to Northern Ireland we're going to share the records so you can see it it's a level of pragmatism no one else did but Rishi Sunak by agreeing to share mm-hmm. those records has beaten down the path to a, a deal that no one else got yeah. do, you, do you know who's gutted about all this Lara? who? Boris Johnson. I would say so. Absolutely <laughs> sickened. Because he was on manoeuvres over the last couple of days and he was trying to plant the idea in unionist heads that they should vote this down, they should just object to this and there would be this rebellion over this deal mm. and it would see him, you know, catapulted back into 10 Downing Street. Because he's been looking, he's, he's still he's still sniffing around, sniffing he's still around. looking. To, but imagine that level. There's, there's something to be said and I don't think it is really like, you know, denigrating or jumping out of the impartiality of, of journalism to say there's something incredibly strange and unsettling about the idea that you would try and just bin this idea of a deal to settle a long long standing issue between a trading bloc a country and our um, our nearest neighbours um, just to try and get yourself back in the job of number 10 personal success well this is it that he values his own power above the welfare of his country because that's what what this is ultimately down to so. Okay, so I mean, while we're on this now, uh, maybe favourite or, or most predominant Boris Johnson memory in your time <laughs> covering him, working none, on Brexit? None, I don't, I don't, no, I don't, like, I mean, this, there's a, the, you know, it's a good question, but like, there's almost an element of like... Favourite's the wrong word, right? Yeah. Let's, the, I mean, and we did not prepare for this, mm. so um, we're all just sort of scratching our heads now. Uh, I remember being, I was in London when he became Prime Minister that time, and, um, you know, like, I think at the time he really, there was a wave of support for Boris Johnson at that time, but... I mean, it was it was a rapid uh, deterioration. Yeah, my end. my standout memory is when he came to government buildings to meet Leo Varadkar during his first tenure as Taoiseach, mm. and he came out and he got out of the car and he basically looked like he'd been sleeping in a ditch, and like he he did not have his suit all straightened up. And I remember taking a photograph. Just he never li- did though. Really, literally did just he? A, just a snap to um to take for for Twitter. Literally just to hold hold your camera up and take a photograph mm. and, and just send it away. And the frame that I happened to get was basically of Boris Johnson with his hand basically down the back of his trousers trying to pull up his, oh, his, nice. his slacks. And like it just, Leo Varadkar there, you know, well-fitted suit, you know, had, had made an effort and Boris basically rolling out of the back of the taxi and pulling the slacks up from around his knees. It was, oh, yeah, God. quite the contrast. I remember when I was in, um, we were in New York for the UN week and we were, a few of us Irish journalists were going to Dwayne Reed as you do in New York. Had to pick up like uh, toothpaste and bits from the pharmacy. Effectively, yeah, yeah. we were just outside the pharmacy. It must have been like ten o'clock at night, and you just see Boris Johnson waltzing down the street. All right, Prime Minister. All right, <laughs> and that was it. But also, actually, my other, if you were to take a standout Boris Johnson, most Boris Johnsony thing ever, that all of this dishevelled, shambolic stuff is all for an image to be relatable. Um, and the thing is that he, um, even just today, uh, he was pictured uh, getting out of his car to to finish off a run just for the cameras. 
Like he didn't not, go for not a run. Not the first time he's done that. Yeah. Like yeah. they're, they're forever doing that. You know, in the, in Britain where they've got this culture of sticking cameras outside people's gaffs so that they can get them when they're, you know, they can look like they're doorstepping someone. Like, oh, what's Jeremy Hunt think of all of this? And you go and doorstep them and they're just coming in from a run. They're coming in from the run that started just around the corner. Ah, here. Like, yeah, he's let out, of the, let out of the Land Rover. Ah, that's desperate. So, oh, you can't mm. get that. That's desperate. Yeah. I found a picture that I took of Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson <laughs> and uh, they... <laughs> It's it's he quite it's quite the double hand down his trousers. He, he literally does. What year was that? Uh, September two thousand and nineteen. He's aged a lot since then, actually, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. we all have. Not we all on. have. We yeah. all have. Okay, so um, listen. Let's let's see how this plays out. I guess we don't even know. We'll know by next. My week, prediction I guess. is we'll never have to talk about Brexit on this podcast in a what's going to happen next sort of way ever again. That is exciting. I uh, caveat to that though. Um, <laughs> which is that Brexit influences everything that goes on afterwards. In yes, the, in but the now the concept of it is going to be—it's going to be completely different. Yeah. In that we're, we're not going—we're not, we're not going to be talking about it. So they got Brexit done. Not then. The same. Finally got Brexit yeah. done. Hashtag got, got Brexit, Brexit done. done. Okay, so back home, uh, SVP has a new report out today, which is showing that almost four hundred thousand people say they were unable to heat their homes last year, and that is more than double the number in twenty twenty one. Now I know we've had this conversation many times here on the podcast about cost of living and the energy crisis, but um, look, this report today just brings it back into focus, I suppose, and, and restarts the conversation. Um, I was at the report launch this morning in Boswell's, and mm. there was a lot of the volunteers from SVP for all from all, all over Ireland came to the launched today and they were it was actually really interesting they had a town hall kind of for want of a better word where they got to kind of give anecdotes mm. and insights from their communities you know and there was one one lady who was talking about a woman who came into her local SVP and she was a mother of three kids a single mum of three kids and she's operating every week at a deficit of 74 euro like she's always short just over 70 euro a week in terms of everything she needs to pay her bills and mm. her groceries and has she got savings or where is it coming no, from no 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 so I, I'm not sure I'm not, I think she was looking for help you or, see when she came looking okay. for it so but the point that this lady was making is like you know those 74 euros add up and like you know at yeah. the end of the month 300 a month yeah so it's, it's a, a constant mm. so there's a constant debt there all the time and just to hear those those kind of key examples also um you know, talking about the impact that the energy crisis is having on people with disabilities as well, that mm. they are disproportionately affected and it's something actually we haven't talked about in much detail. But just that idea of, say, there was one man gave an example of a gentleman who had COPD and had to have a machine operating all day at home to help him literally function and breathe. And like the cost of running that on your electricity bill is through the roof, you know, and, mm. and that man, because of his illness, unable to go out to work then as well. So it's just I think it was just an interesting, you know, conversation back and forth today. Also, that conversation around debt collectors for those energy companies and the SVP very clear today in urging those companies to lay off a little bit in terms of like one woman talking about um, living in fear of answering the phone and feeling totally harassed by by these energy companies now like there was a representative there from the energy companies this morning saying look the point would be answer the phone and we'll come up with a payment plan for you but if you're mm. operating on a 74 euro a week deficit you know payment yeah. plan is going to make no difference to you because you actually you don't, have the, money to don't pay. have the money to pay it anyway yeah. certainly not it's actually interesting that you're having that that sort of conversation at a time when politically now there's a bit of backlash at one of the main providers Electric Ireland over the fact that they are now reducing prices for business customers first mm. before touching residential as yeah. in people's homes people who have been most affected throughout this cost of living crisis this energy poverty crisis that we've gone through over the last winter it, 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 it it's a tough one to stand over and defend particularly with the profits that have been made by a lot of companies and energy providers and fossil fuel giants 
over the last um, the last year or so. Mm. Mm. They're saying more people who are working as well are coming in asking for help. Mm. SVP have cited examples of people who would have previously been like big donors who would have donated to them now coming back around saying, look, I'm sorry, I would have normally supported you, but I'm going to need your help now, wow. which, is, which is interesting. And a representative from Bernardo spoke this morning as well, saying that there's actually um, kind of even without being disconnected that there's this fear of disconnection right so the people are basically preempting a potential cut off so they're now going without um, maybe even unnecessarily to some degree because they're just so anxious about the possibility not totally unnecessarily but yeah. as in they're saying that you know you have situations where there are parents so afraid of being cut off or so afraid of going into debt that they are preemptively um, sort of cutting essential things out of their out of their life particularly they're seeing children being affected uh, children being left without because the parents are afraid of going into debt so look it was just I mean I know we've talked about it many times and it, there's only so much we can really say on it but I think that the report today from SVP just puts it in black and white there in print you know all the things that we've talked about are very clearly outlined mm. in that report the numbers have doubled in a 12 month period of people who cannot afford to heat their home Wow um, on that note actually and it's funny that you mentioned a few energy related things there particularly people who have vulnerable uh, medical conditions who have to run kit which drains a lot of energy I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the windfall tax because the, only this time last week we were talking about the government's cost of living package and they said that's all we're doing now before um, you know the the budget in October or whatever it is and we're going to keep some money aside so that we can make a difference in people's lives then but they're also talking on the other hand about having a windfall tax possibly in place within weeks so that when energy companies start reporting their profits for 2022 mm. that the government immediately has a way of clawing back all the profits that they didn't expect to make but if they're not going to do any more measures until October, they're going to be taking in hundreds of millions, if not billions, in windfall taxes and sitting on them and not giving them back to people in the middle of their rainiest days. Like, how do you justify to the woman who's running at a deficit of 74 euro per mm. week? How do you tell her that, OK, yeah, you're paying huge amounts in, in energy bills and we've got the windfall tax and we're going to sort you out in October? Like, your rainy day is now. And I, I don't Her know really how. Day has been happening for weeks, yeah. for months. So now. I don't know how a government's going to justify taking in all that money in windfall taxes, but then sitting on it until a budget in October. I think they're going to find themselves having to do something else to give the money back sooner rather than later. Mm. Mm. Uh, Gavin, why is everyone talking about Bertie Hearn? I don't know. Richard, why is everyone talking about Bertie Hearn? <laughs> You're going to be seeing a lot more of him too. Uh, Bertie, Bertie is back. Bertie is back. Bertie is back in a very public and visible way, and we're going to be seeing a ton load of him. Uh, by the time we get through the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement but the whole talk is he might run for president uh, this has long been mooted mm. as a thing which could happen but now he's out there and I even heard him he was on the News Agents podcast in the UK there and he was sort of saying oh look if I if I have something to tell you about it I'll come in and I'll tell you guys here first I'll get the exclusive on it so like absolutely he's, oh, do not give Lewis good all the scoop yeah. sorry now like Lewis is nice and he's been good enough to come on the podcast before but don't make that you reveal Bertie seriously yeah so he revealing it to a British podcast that you want to be the Irish president is quite a bizarre I was all, it was all it was all a bit of crack to Bertie in very, in very Bertie ways but it was interesting that there was the poll out at the weekend though which showed that I think it was more I think it was more than 50% of people uh, would definitely not was their term and phrase vote for Bertie Hearn to become mm. president mm. which isn't necessarily I mean all you need is like if, if, if say 20% of people would definitely vote for him he'd be fancying yeah. his chances yeah. at that point uh, I should should say by the way that when I joked I don't know why he's in the news that that was a joke no, I don't I know, know whether, whether transmitters yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do this for a living I, I hope I know why he's around <laughs> that poll was fascinating that Red nobody Sea poll nobody told you didn't know Gav yeah. don't worry love that, it's fine well the, the reason why I joked and said I don't know is because the idea of him running for president is so harebrained that like it's never is going it, to is it though yeah. 
it. Though. It really uh, is. Ari, look at now and I tell you something, it, right? I never underestimate the political ambition of somebody like Bertie Ahern. The first time... Never underestimate the desire for power. No, like, you oh, can't. Fine. Like, but the first time that you he... You have to assume that all former leaders would want. And as soon as he announces and the first time he does any kind of a press event, he's going to face the questions that he's managed to avoid from the Irish press for the last 11 years which is how come a tribunal of inquiry found that you accepted £165,000 in donations and couldn't account for where they came from? Mm. Like, that, that's, that's a huge thing. It was never resolved, and, and it'll only come back, and people of our generation who didn't live through the tribunals and maybe the, the details of what he was alleged to have done or not done have been glossed over. But, yeah. like, that's, that's going to come back. And um, That Red Sea poll was fascinating because it was asking people in a hypothetical two-way race between Bertie Ahern and Jerry Adams, who would they rather vote for? And 60% of people said, given those two candidates, they would not vote. Really? Uh, and the 21 Somebody's got to win though. Yeah, no, no, the, pres- the presidential election is always mad dirty though, isn't it? Oh. Which is, I honestly which think is it's why? one of the dirtiest campaigns. And like almost to the point where it becomes like really uncomfortable the level of stuff that's revealed about people. Like I actually find it filth like that's, the president that's why he's not going to run. It's just the worst. I don't like, know, Gav. Who'd run for president? Bertie Ahern like, was, was Brian Lenahan's director of elections in 1990 Every when this bit whole of dirty laundry out there on the line. Doesn't it's matter. just filth. Does Teflon, Teflon is the nickname which followed Bertie around for a long time. <laughs> Because he doesn't really, it doesn't, it isn't going to unsettle him. The no. fact that we're going to have to talk about all the things we've talked about for a long yeah. time before. Why else? It gets, a bit, it gets a bit personal, though, doesn't it? Sometimes it does. It's it going to be. It's going to. The, the the race for Oros and Nukedron is a knife fight. It is. Uh, it is an absolute knife fight, mm. politically speaking. And Bertie Hearn has armed all of his opponents. Yeah, but like, I mean, we all know that it doesn't. It isn't going to stop him running. Um, it might 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 mean that a lot of people won't vote for him, but it's not going to stop him from running. Why else is he out here doing all of these things? Well, it well, became a bit of a circus the last time, if I can remember. Though I mean, it feels like so long ago now. But like, I mean, you just remember some of the candidates. It was all a bit. There was, it it was Peter a Casey and, and Sean, Sean Gallagher too, and then yeah. before that, it was Michael D Higgins and Sean Gallagher won, and Dana and some of the drama that surrounded her campaign. And the and time then, be- time before that was Mary McAleese uncontested, but Dana wanted to run that time too. They always get it just really, gets really messy. It just gets really dirty. Yeah. really messy and I don't even know does the voter want that level of like well, which which goes back to your question then as to why is Bertie back around and the reason is that uh, Fianna Fáil want to have somebody to be their ambassador for the victory lap of Good Friday 25 coming up next month mm. and as it stood without Bertie Hearn being in the party fold they had nobody to put forward to accept the, the flowers that everyone else is giving but it's not going to be enough to trade on is it Richard like really it is the it is the ultimate question on what Bertie Hearn's legacy is going to be is it going to be the tribunals or is it going to be the Good Friday Agreement and the gamble is being made by Bertie that he can make it so that we will all think about the Good Friday Agreement and somehow I don't know how uh, look past the tribunals and look past the crash and everything that happened following his government it's a hell of a gamble to make but I don't I, I, I do think when it comes down to it he probably will run I do think he probably will run. I don't oh, know. I agree. No, I, definitely I do. Think I do he think will. he's gonna. I think it's, it's 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 at least. I think he thinks he's going to run now. Whether or not he actually does in the end, I think he thinks he's going to run. Are there some people, Gavin? Do you think that will remember Bertie Hearn for like the the boom times, like that will remember the Celtic Tiger and think? Yes. Do they? Do you think like that they that they almost for, like not that no? Who could forget about the crash? I mean, no one's forgetting about the crash. But I'm just saying, like, are there some people who just associate Bert? Like, I remember being in secondary school during the height of the boom, and Bertie Hearn's big, you know. Mm. Big uh, boom time, yeah. and I think people really just. Richard is giggling because I think he's just recalled the the Monty Burns. Yes, um, no, it's not actually that. Actually, I just, I just, I just find, I just find the general. Yeah, tell the, re- tell the rest of the class now. What I think, I think the the the. the um, the, the collective amnesia which takes place within uh, oh yeah I find that in, very funny in, yeah. is, is, is very funny and I think it, it will be traded off 
It will be traded off. There will be a feeling of, should it not to do this, that, the other? Well, there, there will because he wasn't around at the time of the crash because he'd already handed over. Now, you could argue that all the damage was done and that all the regulatory decisions that led to the bank guarantee and then the bailout all happened under his watch. But he was lucky enough to be forced out by the tribunal in time to not be around for the bank guarantee. I never thought I'd get to potentially report on a Bertie Hearn political campaign. And I don't think any of us ever thought we would. But here we all are staring down the barrel of, of, a, of, of a presidential election and, and potentially him Who running. else do you think is going to run? Um, are, we not, are we playing that game? I think, no. I think Jerry Adams will run. Yeah. And the reason I think Jerry Adams will run is that the government, uh, the, the successive Finnegal governments have now promised for seven or eight years to have a referendum on extending the vote for presidential elections to Irish citizens living outside of the state, to Irish people living in the north and Irish people living abroad, who um, many of whom have lived there for long enough a very romanticised view of the troubles and what they see as a fight for the um, the independence and the true the, the return of the fourth Greenfield. And I think any Sinn Féin candidate gets a little bit of a leg up, electorally speaking, in that event. So if that referendum on extending presidential voting rights does happen, I think Sinn Féin will think that Jerry Adams has a good chance of getting the office. I don't know who else will. I think it's always a surprise. I think that we, we would be better served, perhaps, in, 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 in any future presidential election by it not being dominated by candidates from one reality television show. That would be we good. Should, we should just change reality show that they come from now. Can we just make them the judges from home of the year? Can we have like Hugh Wallace running against people going around the Oris going, it's perfect to give us a nine. And what about like the idea of a young person like is Ireland ready for a young president maybe? well we voted against allowing very young presidents I know yeah obviously um, yeah we're, we're only just in fact is Richard st- is Richard yet old enough to run for president are nope. you 34 nope. thirty four? no so Richard's not le- the, the, the law the, the law is such an ass that Richard Chambers is not eligible to be our president I well, mean Chambers next time around I would be honest, yeah. <laughs> would, you ever, would you ever run for the president absolutely not would you not politician politics is not my game side note I, I am really the, the, this by the way not not the idea of running for president but just the fact that presidential candidates have to be age 35 is actually something that's not close to my heart is a, is a weird phrase but we had the referendum it's, it is 35 yeah so the referendum I'm not old enough either on the same day that we had the referendum on um, marriage equality we had a referendum on lowering the age of presidential candidates yeah. so that you would be at least entitled to seek to run if you were 21 years old and it got rejected because everyone was like oh you'll just have President Niall Horan or President Jedward and uh, people will be wrong with President Jedward <laughs> both at the same time <laughs> but well, the, the, the reason why th- that sticks Jedward in my mind Jedward has been speaking a lot of truth to power in recent years the reason why it sticks in my mind the reason why it bothers me is that I was the political correspondent in Today FM at the time and because there was nobody arguing in favour of a yes vote that would actually go on air and have an argument about why this is necessary an entire referendum passed that I could not cover because I couldn't find people to act out or so argue both sides the of the debate. You need to have, you need to have the balance. Yes, yeah. pursue the balance. I couldn't find sure. a single advocate who would make the case for a liber- So it was the forgotten referendum. And of course, marriage equality will live much longer in people's minds. But the other referendum of the day was whether people of your age, Zara, and your age, Richard, should be allowed <laughs> to even think about running for president. And your fellow citizens said no. Well, had it passed, another man who could have potentially become president as one of Ireland's favourites is 27-year-old Paul Meskell. Yes. Why, why shouldn't he be allowed to be president? I mean, I feel like there would be... There would be a, He's a got huge, good Gaelga. Absolutely. Um, Paul Meskell found himself in a kind of a, I suppose, very actually, like, very upsetting situation, really, in a lot of ways, um, in the course of taking a selfie. Richard, do you want to maybe... Give us the insight into this one. Yeah, he, he raised this story recently to Paul Meskell um, uh, of how he was effectively groped mm. while um, somebody asked for a selfie. A female fan asked for a selfie and effectively groped him um, while doing so. Uh, and he was very, very angered by this, absolutely naturally. 
Uh, and it sparked a bit of a conversation around, I suppose, access to uh, celebrities, for want of a better word. Um, the fact that selfie culture has got to this point where people feel that they can do this. Uh, it's it effectively like there's no way around it that's a horrible experience for for, for, so. for, for that guy to go mm-hmm. through very nice guy by all accounts and it's really it's it's terrible that this happened um, while he was basically taking time out of his own life um, to, to help to do something for a fan is what he thought was the situation mm. um, and it's 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 very grim and it is a sad reflection I suppose of the world we're in what I was going to say was if this had happened to a female actress actor like it would it would be total outrage is there a different is there a double standard do you think when it happens no because I do, think the, I, I do think the same outrage I think there is still well, outrage no, there, there is now Maybe that not, he's called it out though because yeah. I mean but there's some people who say oh he's overreacted but you know have you ever been in a situation where you felt maybe like somebody crossed a line with you, like that a woman crossed a line with you? Um, in truth, no. Um, yeah. But I think the overriding theme is that sometimes people think that famous people or other people that they just think are attractive or handsome or good looking, that they're there simply to decorate your world. And they mm. are not. They are people too who are entitled to not be groped just as anyone else who walks down the street. Yeah. And just because he was a heartthrob on uh, normal people or because he's very good in After Sun or because he's going to the Oscars next week is is not an excuse for you to go fondling him. Just, yeah. no. Like, that could be a very traumatic thing to, that actually happened to him. I mean, mm. that's... that's I, th- I think that's something which can't be looked past. Um, but also, just on the virtue or the, or the general point around the whole selfie thing, I've, I've, who did I read during the week? I think it was Chris Pratt and a couple of other celebrities are like, we, we just don't do them anymore. Mm. We just don't do them anymore because... Um, a, you're not the, the person isn't actually in the moment, mm. but they're actually looking to steal a moment, just basically to commodify it later for you know kudos online or whatever like that. So as opposed, to, as opposed to I'm delighted to meet. Yes, they don't want to meet you. They yeah. just want to have a record of having been in mm. your company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and just generally, they feel that people are, are crossing the line a little bit too much these days. But I think saying no sometimes is probably quite awkward for people as well, is it? It's un- yeah, it's probably unwinnable because if you like become a celebrity become, who has a rep for yeah. never stopping for a selfie, then you you just get get media portrayed as an yeah, asshole. It's a tough totally, one. Yeah, it and then your your whole kind of I guess a lot of like the success is built on the fans like going and watching your movies and supporting you. So then it's sort of perceived as a small ask. Would you mind standing for a photo with me there? And if you continue to say no, do you become? It is a difficult. It's a difficult line to thread, really. Yeah, and the, there's a perception that if you ask for a selfie, that might only be five seconds of your life. But if they're asked for a hundred selfies on the way going in, that's five hundred seconds, which is nearly ten minutes, and they do that at everything they go to. Then, like, it's a big chunk out of your life. So you can understand why they'd be like, "Look, at, I just don't have the time. I don't have the energy, or I, I don't have it in me to to feign, you know, politeness for fifteen minutes here." But then you become a you, you, you get this public rep for being unlikable obviously outside of the work environment is there anyone you met that was really famous when you were like a kid or like a teenager that you got a selfie or like an autograph with well, selfies didn't exist when we were teenagers <coughs> did they I don't know <laughs> I have uh, been in the Oval Office four times and I have put questions to Presidents of the United States I've sat down with Taoiseach I've been in Downing Street and I've Humble asked brag. questions <laughs> of, of, prime, of a Prime Minister I was in the company of Eric Cantona and I became a total juvenile, blubbering, incoherent uh, mess. That's nice. Did where you? I literally had no idea what to say to the man. I think I asked him, like, so are you, are you staying in... He was at a meet and greet thing in Dublin and he had one the following night in Belfast. And I was like, are you staying in Dublin tonight? Are you going to Belfast? And he was like, no, no, I stay. And I went, cool. Just, Have a like, good night then, Mr. Cantona. <laughs> What a man! Like just, but just, com- just cool. ru- ruined that's to cool. just cool. reduced to nothingness I by just his majesty. That. Yeah, that's brilliant. Have you? you? 
Um, I can't really think. I don't mean either. I'm I struggling really here. Think, I don't think I love so. I've expected you to answer it, and I can't even think of mm. one myself. Yeah, no, I can't really think of anyone to be honest, Sarah, um, on that. But I just think I think I think there's a general point on this though now, like that it's just gone to that point that social media has driven this this economy almost around selfies and stuff. That it must feel fairly crap and fairly lonely for a lot of people who are going out there can't even just go down to the supermarket or whatever without fear of like. I'm going to have to stop to do this, that and the other and this person's going to quote me and I don't have any control over what they're going to do and what they're going to ask and all that mm. sort of stuff. That is tough. But there isn't that level of privacy there that I think that probably existed even a few years ago before the selfie culture really ratcheted up to where it is. Yeah. I met Proof from D12 once. Do you know D12 M&M's band? Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, I met him in the Four Seasons in Dublin. <laughs> I mean, like, no, was it, I wasn't was it, like was a it, super detail. Was it at a meet and greet or like did no, you know where, we were, the, where was, the band was staying? <laughs> no, I was actually going to a Westlife concert that night. <laughs> And Eminem was playing in Ireland the same night. I think he was playing in Leopardstown, and Westlife was on their big summer run at the time. And um, my friend Susie and I, um, we we met Keen from Westlife, and then proof from D12 was out in the reception of the hotel and my friend Holly was a big Eminem fan so I asked him to sign an autograph for me and I told him that my name was Holly for my friend Holly and nice. he it was really sweet and then he wrote to Holly stay sweet and it was lovely such a random story <laughs> an unusual swerve at the end but what was well. their favourite famous song Purple Hills was it D12 there was my band my yeah, band was a great song yeah, 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 I, yeah. They, were never, they were never really my thing Okay. Yeah. I well. wish for you and Eric Canton a moment at some point in the future where you're so overwhelmed by someone being you so know, awesome. I'm going to be honest. You... I'm going to be honest. I actually don't think I'd have any of that reaction anymore just because of that virtue of the fact that I feel like these people are so set upon and like, you know, mauled by people that yeah. I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that to mm. them, do you know? Yeah, and like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I just feel, I just feel like it's probably gone just that. that I know, but I understand what Gav is saying about One hundred percent. I think yeah. I wouldn't begrudge you that moment, Gav, because I think that that is a beautiful thing to meet your childhood sporting hero is a yeah. beautiful thing. Well, I think like even we had Alex Crawford on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and like I love her, like I legit love her. Nice. Oh, look, I found, I found jersey, my cancer picture. That's yes, yes. Okay, okay, that's, I brought that's a, cool. I brought a jersey from from the 93 season, the iconic United one with the lacing on the collar, and I got him to sign it, and it's held up as if he's announced that he's a new signature. Gav, you look so excited here. <laughs> I look so excited and Eric Cantona who has not even bothered to wear a shirt he's just wearing a zippy with nothing on underneath is so nonplussed by my clearly poor conversational you skills so <laughs> that I excited. was unable to engage the man for 15 seconds that is gorgeous that yeah. is gorgeous okay I think we're out of time I think great so. week enjoy the chats yeah I'm I'm kind of loving this like you know we're we're enjoying this well we this hope we'll be back on TV soon but we yeah. will be, it's a very yeah. rootsy group chat is what it is very back to the roots it like, is you know? thanks to everyone who sent lovely messages during the week actually and they enjoyed last week's episode we enjoyed making it yeah. too the so people have spoken they have spoken we're going to the Gossies mm. <laughs> you're still going to that stag party yep yeah we're if it's not to too late to vote, still vote for us in the Gossies I think it do. might be actually well if <laughs> it is <laughs> definitely too late actually <laughs> not, not the point <laughs> if there are any Russians listening please manipulate the election so that we win the Gossies have you figured out what you're going to wear for the circus theme uh, no, no okay. I have not we'll Great. figure it out be fine. stand by everyone it's going to be so exciting good luck guys <laughs> hope, <laughs> hope we win if you don't come back with that award I won't speak oh, we're to you no, I'm telling you we're not, we're not winning that the category is unreal That's we're not winning it but we're going to represent uh, and we'll, we'll do you proud hun. we'll do you proud good stuff that's all I ask okay thanks for listening guys we'll catch you again next week bye bye see you then 